Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. We've been talking about, um, I've been preaching about and teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is teaching from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, oh, you know what? Before I do, let me, I got a couple of announcements too. I forgot, totally forgot it. In the flow of things, I just totally forgot about this. Let me let you know. Did, did Last week, I started passing these little uh, information cards out for you to update your information to me. Did anybody, did everybody get to fill one out who's here or are, are there any here who've not filled one out yet? Uh, awesome. Uh, uh, there's Joseph. He's going to, he, I started doing it when Joseph was uh, busy here, but. Um, Michael and Kristen need one, but basically what we're doing, um, I, I'm just needing to, uh, uh, up, update our, uh, really, you know, we're a church, we're a body of Christ. Every person who's a member of the body of Christ, we are in covenant together. Every voice is important. Everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ, but also at the same time, we are a legal organization. We are a legal entity, and there's certain things that we have to do that that allow us to function and operate as an entity. And one of the things is we have to uh, keep a, uh, a a roster of current current members. And so I just we're wanting to update the information there and make sure that we uh, have everything accurate so that we can continue to uh, function as a uh, legal. Uh, uh, sovereign church. So if you would just fill that out. Um, and then it says, if you're a member circle, yes or no. Uh, or if you're interested in membership circle, yes or no. If you're not sure you're a member, just, uh, put a question mark there and I'll talk to you. If you filled one out last week and I didn't get with you yet, that's okay. I'm, I'm just wanting to do this for about three weeks so that we can cover everybody. And then, then I'd like just to speak with, with those who are interested in becoming members and, uh, and uh, make that happen. Amen. Just excited about that. And I'll tell you what, I, I love this church. And so what an awesome group of people. I really, really love you guys. Um, it, it's a it's a great place to be. Um, also, I do want to let you know, too, um, back to school cookout party will be next week. Right. Do we have a sign up, Mary? There's a sign up in the back. Uh, we're going. OK, it started out like this. Tara was going to have a back to school party for the youth. Then she invited the younger kids. Now, if you're going to invite the younger kids, that means I've got to be there because I've got younger kids. And then if I got to be there, that means we're going to cook and eat. Right. Right. If we're going to cook and eat, we might as well have everybody stay. Right. So anyway, it, it started out a youth day and it is where, you know, if you you're a younger person, we're still going to make it about you. Don't worry. But we're all going to eat and we're all going to have fun. We're all going to fellowship. So uh, there is a sign up in the back. Church will provide for the the hamburgers and hot dogs. It is a cookout. So we'll provide for the meat. But uh, if you guys want to bring a side, that will be next Sunday after the after the morning service. So you sign up and uh, hey, it's good to see you back, Marilyn. And we saw Bruce last week, but they've been traveling. What's the report? I know everybody knows because we all talk, but do you want to give us a report on the new grandbaby? There you go. <laughs> all right, come on. Here, healthy, ready. That sounds good. So, so great. So great to have you guys back. Um, so anyway, Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at that. Now, last Sunday, I was a, uh, I was a, uh, we had the kids in here and it was a family Sunday. So I thought, I talk about something that kids know about. We talked about the golden rule last week. But today I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to talk about lust, anger, adultery, and divorce. How does that sound? <laughs> I heard a preacher say that, you know, if you ever have a, a rowdy group of people, a rowdy, you guys are never rowdy, but a, a rowdy church, you start talking about adultery or money, and they all settle down real quick. So, <laughs> But uh, Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5, if you'll turn there, I'd like to see if I can't get through the whole chapter today. There's a lot there, but what I want to do is just kind of do an overview and slice through it. So we'll jump around a little bit, but um, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and, and uh, stay there. I'd like to start reading with verse 17 through 20. Jesus said, Don't, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, is that a tough passage or what? (laughs) That is a tough passage. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things to get right, I think, because there's extreme ideas on all sides of this issue. And what we're trying to do, we're just trying to reconcile what Jesus is saying here with what the whole totality of scriptures teach. So on the one hand, we've got this idea that, you know, God gave the law and the commandments, which he did in the Old Testament through Moses. But we have this idea that the reason he gave them was so that I could go to heaven. When I die, if I keep these commandments, if I could keep them perfect, um, when I die, I'll go to heaven. But then we found out that it was impossible for anybody to actually keep them. So what did God do? He said, well, that was a bad idea. I'm just going to erase all that stuff and I'm going to send Jesus. And then if you, Jesus will keep the commandments for you and then you'll go to heaven when you die. And uh, there's, there's some truth in that, but it's an oversimplification. It misses a lot of the purpose of what all the Old Testament scriptures are for. It misses the purpose of this. I mean, look what Jesus said here. He said in uh, verse 19, Uh, The last part, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, if you don't, your righteousness doesn't exceed this, you'll never enter the, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven here as well. We're not just talking about the Old Testament. So that's an oversimplification. So on the other hand, though, we've got the idea that uh, uh, when people come come to faith in Jesus Christ, um, somehow, when, when they come, they get saved, they join the church, whatever. There's a certain level of Old Testament law and commandments that they're required to keep, like legally. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, now that you're here, you've got to keep these rules. <laughs> you're saved by grace, but let me show you all these things that you have to do now if you want to stay saved. And uh, that kind of... The, the truth is this, the, the, the teaching in the Bible, the law... The Old Testament law has never been given to the church, ever. Not the ceremonial law, not the moral law. It was given to the Jewish nation. It was never given to the church. See, the Bible tells us things like this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those that believe. It's the end of the law for righteousness. Another way you could say that is Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness. In other words, the purpose of the law was to point to Christ. Now that Christ is here, the law is over. Right? What about Ephesians 2, chapter 14 and 15? Listen to this verse. For he himself is our peace. And this is Jesus Christ is our, our peace who made us both made us both one, that is the Jews and the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles. He made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By first, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in... (laughs) What can I get it today? By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, in his flesh, he took that law and he abolished it. But the problem is this. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. (laughs) And Paul said he did. (laughs) So who's right? What's going on here? I'd just like to give you something to think about. I know the answer. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. Here's the key, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does that tell you? It tells me something happened that day when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished. Something was accomplished, was it not? You know, sometimes we think that we need to try to persuade God to meet us or help us. But I'm telling you what, from heaven's point of view, God already did everything he needed to do for you to be 100% reconciled to him. From heaven's point of view, he's already provided everything we need for our healing and provision and to live a godly life in this world. From his perspective, all of the promises find their yes in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. 
So my question, though, is this. Where does that leave us with the Sermon on the Mount? Another way to frame the question is this. Is the Sermon on the Mount New Testament teaching for the church? Or is it Old Testament teaching for the Jews? I, I, I uh, used to... Um, debate and argue with a group of people who are pretty much saying everything in the gospels is old testament and not for the church i'm like how how do you how do you get that jesus is bringing a kingdom he, he and he says things like this is how the kingdom of god works he's like you can't say that's old testament and not for the church because we're part we're, we've inherited the kingdom he says i'm giving you i'm i'm conferring on you a kingdom we're we're members in the kingdom of god we're citizens in the kingdom of god so if it's talking about the kingdom of God, it's talking about me. All right? They say, was it Old Testament or New Testament? Was all this stuff here done away with at the cross? Or is Jesus saying something about the kingdom of God that applies to us today? Was Jesus preaching pure law to those who are under the law? Or was he instituting and proclaiming the ways of the kingdom? The kingdom that is pressing in into the earth. The kingdom that came with him. And one of the marks, let me tell you this, one of the marks of really bad Bible teaching is the use of a false dichotomy. You know what I mean by false dichotomy? It's when you take two things that maybe are not always in agreement, but not always in disagreement, but you place them against each other and you make them polar opposites. False dichotomies. Watch for those. So, so the, in the scriptures, there is a contrast. Understand, there is a difference between grace and law. Okay, there's a difference, but they work together. They've always worked together. The law has always been something of grace too, right? It's it's not a they're not a polar opposite. They're different, but they're also in agreement in some ways. It's like this. It's like the law was running along in a relay race, you know. And the law is running along, and then here comes grace, and law hands off the baton to grace, and grace grabs that baton and runs across the finish line and wins the race. And what does law do? Law goes, see that? That's exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> but grace took us across the finish line. It's not like the law and grace were opposite. That's what I was trying to do, and now it is accomplished. Now it is fulfilled. Now my work is done. Isn't that good? So let's look at the Sermon on the Mount with this idea. Look at verse 17. What did Jesus come to fulfill? 517. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, right? Or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. So first, he's not speaking of just the law. He's talking about, this is shorthand, the law and the prophets is shorthand for all the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about all the prophecies about him. In Isaiah, the suffering servant, he's talking about the, uh, the, the kingly uh, uh, Messiah in Psalm 2, as well as all of the sacrifices that pointed to the work that he was going to accomplish on the cross. And boy, let me tell you, when he said it is finished, he did it. It was finished. That is good. Come on, thank him for that. I'm telling you what. But he's saying the prophets were predicting the coming of his ministry, and this is what he came to fulfill. And he said not one, you know, iota. What's an iota? Iota is like the smallest letter in the both the Greek and Hebrew alphabet. And a, and a dot, I think the King James talks about a jot and a tittle, right? A tittle is like a little accent mark, you know, how some like, like it almost be like your, your little line that makes your the difference between a C and an E. You know, just a little line or a cross on a T or a dot on an I. Isn't that interesting how, how, how um, uh, literal Jesus is treating the scriptures? He's saying every mark, every word is important. He's not just doing away with it. He's saying it's all important, but I've come to fulfill it. I've come to accomplish all of it. Oops. So he says... Uh, I didn't, he didn't come to relax the law, downplay the law, say it wasn't important. What did he come to do? He came to accomplish all that God intended for him to accomplish. So the question then is, where do we fit in? And the answer is, in Christ. In 
Christ, we also are a fulfillment of prophecy. We are. When, when we come to Jesus and he does his work in our hearts, we are fulfilling the law and we are fulfilling the prophet. Isn't the prophecies say, I'm going to take their stony hearts out, give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. Not the law of commandments that was written in the tablets of stone, but I'm going to put my law in their hearts. I'm going to make them after my nature. Look at Romans. Keep your, keep your finger in Matthew 5. But look at Romans chapter 2. And look at verse 13. And, and uh, I know some of this can come across as a little tedious, what I'm teaching today. But I think it's important because there is a lot of teaching all around this issue. And we need to be settled in it. We need to be settled because people come and, boy, they pull, pull the verses they want out. And uh, at first, you'll look at it and you'll say, like, I, I see that makes sense. But your heart, you know, doesn't seem right. So you keep searching and then you start finding out the verses that they don't quote, <laughs> trying to convince you for their point of view. But I just want us to be established in the scriptures in this. In Romans chapter two, Paul is talking about a group of people who are actually fulfilling the law, even though they're not Jewish, because they've never been given the law. Look at it, 2 and verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. So, you know, the Jews were good hearers of the law, but they weren't doing it. Verse 14, For when the Gentiles, which means the nations, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's the prophecy that's been fulfilled in you who has the Spirit of God when the law is written on your heart. And listen to this. It says, while their conscience then also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay? Because you have a conscience. You have God's law written on your heart that will keep you if you will learn how to follow that. And then it says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So this phrase here, do not have the law. He says that twice. He says the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the law, even though they don't have the law. So unless you are Jewish, understand you've never been given the law, ever. You do not, you do not have the law. But he, when he does his work on our hearts, it says that by nature, we do what the law requires. Well, isn't that beautiful? See, God has a lot of faith in the new birth. I've been saying this lately. God has a lot of faith in his ability to transform a life. Come on, that gives me hope. See, I think sometimes we lead people to Jesus and then, then we like, oh man, we got to really, I mean, okay, we're supposed to be there. We're supposed to walk them through. We're supposed to do life together. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about a radical conversion that people have seen it. We've heard stories about it, but it doesn't happen a lot because we don't have the same faith in the new birth that God has. I have friends who, when they got saved, man, they left drugs the moment they got saved, they were delivered from addiction. Does God still want to do that today? Yes. Okay. I mean, if it doesn't happen, no, you, you, you stay on it. Okay. I'm not saying if it doesn't happen, it's not God's will. I'm just saying God's willing to do things like that. Radical conversions, because he believes in the ability of his spirit to go into your life and change your nature. And lots of times we still want to put you under the law a little bit because <laughs> we don't really trust that God's work is working in your heart. <laughs> Let's decide to trust God. Let's decide to be so sold out to God that we can just flow in that and minister that and trust that the Spirit of God will bring conviction of sin and holiness and righteousness and all of the things that he does. So God has a lot of faith in the new birth. He really believes he can change a person's heart through the power of the gospel and through the power of his spirit. And look at this in verse 16, it says, uh, according to my gospel, when he's talking about that, that this conscience that they have, this law in their hearts will, will accuse them or acquit them on that judgment day. Paul is willing to hold this up against judgment day. So that if God wrote his law in your heart, you can stand before him. Having followed that law, he's written on your heart and it will excuse you on that day when you stand before him, when he's judging the thoughts and secrets of your heart. Come on, we need that work in our lives. 
We need to give ourselves to that and put faith and trust in it and trust that God can change us. Because he believes he can. He believes he can. So why do we still hang on to stuff? Because sometimes we don't believe he can. Come on, what's, what's, what's coming to salvation is just complete surrender. God, change my life. Cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. If you don't believe that he cares for you, you'll never cast your cares on him. You're going to keep a, you're going to keep a hang, handle on him yourself. Cast your life on him. He'll make it into something beautiful. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Of course, all is accomplished at Jesus' work on the cross, like I said. And that's the basis of what, the basis of that is what, uh, because of what Jesus has done at the cross, he can do what he needs to do in our hearts so that we can also be a part of fulfilling the law. But in verse 19, look at this one. This is the one that's bothered me for a long, long time. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what's he saying? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? Relaxing the law and keeping the law. Because I know we're not under the law. I know we've never been given the law. I know it's all been fulfilled at the Christ. But what does he mean when he says whoever relaxes these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least? And he who keeps them and teaches them will be called great. Kind of sounds like Jesus is telling me to teach the commandments. But he's not doing that. Because he's not advocating for more legalism. Because let me say this. Get this statement. Legalism here is the problem, not the solution. And let me show you what I mean. What he's saying here is exactly what the Jewish people were doing. See, because Jesus didn't come to make us lawyers. Think about it. He didn't come to give us a bunch of rules. What did he come to do? He came to give us life. Life. And when he gave you life, then you become the fulfillment of the law. He's not promoting legalism. It's the legalistic reading of the scriptures that the Jews had that were the problem. And that is what he's confronting here. Look at Matthew chapter 15. It says it so clearly. And when, once we read this chapter, you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to see it here on the Sermon on the Mount. It says, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. So they're all worked up over a hand washing. But it was the tradition of the elders. The, I mean, this was the scribes and th these are the lawyers, man. These are the people who are interpreting the word of God. And they're saying you cannot be godly because you're not keeping the, the rules, man. Why do you break the tradition of the elders? And he answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. <laughs> That's a harsh penalty for breaking that law. But you say, if anyone tells his mother or father, what you have gained from me is a gift given to God, he need not honor his father. Who's guilty of relaxing the commandment right here? Yeah. And what did he say? For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void. That's a dangerous place to be, to have a tradition that makes the word of God void in your life. Come on. It's the word of God is how we're saved. The word of God is how we receive the promises. And if we have traditions that we pit against the word of God that keeps us from ever doing the word, boy, what a bad place to be. And that's where these Pharisees were. They were uh, keeping their traditions and they were relaxing. They were, they were weakening the commandment. So it's exactly what's happening also in Matthew chapter five. Jesus is telling the Jews that your traditions have voided out the word of God. And in keeping your traditions handed down, you have actually left the scriptures and you have missed the purpose of the whole thing. I'm here to restore the purpose and to fulfill them completely, not to relax them like you're doing, but to fulfill them.
See, in Jesus's day, like today, they had their own cultural way of reading the scriptures, no doubt, right? And the scribes and the rabbis, you know, they monopolized the teaching of the scriptures. They, uh, you know, they took everything and went back and found verses just to prop up their worldview and their traditions. And they kind of kept, you know, they kept a monopoly on the word of God because that kept their thumb of control on the people, right? They were trying to keep everybody under control. And so they had their own scriptures and their own positions on their issues of their day. But we do the same thing. Come on, we have biblical sayings that are in the Bible. I was just thinking of some that were kind of funny. Some are more funny than others. But uh, you ever hear this Bible verse? It's in First Traditions, chapter 3, verse 14. Okay, First Traditions is not a Bible Bible book. Okay, ever hear, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. I thank God that He helps those who doesn't help themselves. <laughs> he helps those who can't help themselves. I mean, it's probably good advice to get up and keep moving, but it's not a scripture. God helps those who help themselves. Second Deceptions, chapter 9, verse 12. No, that's not a Bible verse either. God works in mysterious ways. Well, they might be mysterious to you or to somebody, but that's not what the Bible teaches. He doesn't say that in the Bible. In fact, the more you get to know him, the less mysterious his ways are. It, it turns out in the end, he does exactly what he says he's going to do. He's pretty predictable. I mean, all this stuff right here. <laughs> and then he comes over here in this half. He's like, he's just did it all. <laughs> it's pretty predictable. But no, we say God works in mysterious ways. Money is the root of all evil. That's not a Bible verse. Who said that? Love of money. The love of money. Come on. You can commit that sin without even having a penny to your name. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, we got to get it right. We've got our own traditions. Um, everything works out for good in the end. Not always, and not for everybody. Yeah, for those who love him are called according to his purpose, right? Let's quote the whole verse, right? Or how about this one? Everything happens for a reason. What's, what is that even saying? Everything happens for, maybe you did something stupid, and that's why something happened. <laughs> and there's your reason, but... <laughs> Okay, there you go. Everything happens for you. And then one more. Uh, the eyes are the window to the soul. That's not exactly what it says either. But we have our own way of looking at these scriptures or looking at our culture has our own way of perceiving what they think God is like. And it's not even based on the scripture, right? So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount here, he goes through a series of six statements that begin with this phrase. You have heard it said. And then he brings correction. But I say to you. So why does he say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, because what they were hearing said was not the word of God. They had twisted it. They had relaxed it. They had lessened it. They had perverted it. And he's saying, I'm coming to fulfill every jot and every tittle perfectly. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let them give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. And verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And finally, Matthew 5, 43 and 44 is the last one. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If I look at that one with me, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. I'm going to start in the end. You, sh you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Come on, what was the, if you go back in, the, in, in Deuteronomy and you quote, read the original law, what was it? Did it say, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy? No, what did it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it said. So the Jews, being the legalistic people they were, and reading the law legally, were like, hmm, it says love your neighbor. That means if you're not my neighbor, I don't have to love you. <laughs> I can love my neighbor, and I can hate everybody else. I can hate these Romans who are here. I can hate my enemies. I can hate people who do wrong to me. As long as they're not na my neighbor, check. <laughs> Legal. 
You see the problem of reading the law legally? You missed the intent of the law. It's like when that uh, Pharisee was, you know, the expert of the law in Luke chapter 10 came to Jesus and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and soul and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, seeking to justify himself, he says, who, and who is my neighbor? Why would he need to justify himself if he was not filled with hatred and anger toward people? Right? Depending on how Jesus is going to answer this, who is my neighbor is going to tell me if I'm justified or not. Because if everybody's my neighbor, I'm toast. If my neighbor just happens to be the person who lives there and there, or the people who go to my synagogue, then I'm going to be justified under the law. They were that legal, ridiculous, isn't it? And then Jesus tells them the, you know, the parable of the good Samaritan and tells him to go be neighborly himself. It's no wonder. Can you see? Can you see how their interpretation of it was relaxing the commandment, how it was weakening it and undermining the intention of it? So no wonder Jesus says, until your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's like, you guys are not going to make it. That was the rebuke in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to verse 21, the very first one. Look at this. See how it works here. Well, I got to go quick now. Uh, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Is he saying that as long as you don't actually kill somebody, it's okay to be angry and to hate them and wish evil on them and do bad things to them? <laughs> I mean, is that the intent of the law? Okay, I was really mad today, and I, I said evil things, and I actually was hoping for bad things, but you know what? I didn't kill them. <laughs> I didn't kill them. <laughs> Check. I'm legal. That's not the intent of the law. Do you see how they're relaxing, they're weakening, they're undermining the intent of the law through their legalistic interpretation with it? Jesus says what? But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother who will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. And then he goes on to talk about reconciliation. If you're offering your gift and Go and be reconciled to your brother. Why? Because reconciliation takes priority over sacrifice. But the point is this, under the letter of the law, under their hyper-legalistic way that they were reading it and teaching it, you could go so far in your hate that you could, you could wrong one another, you could speak evil of one another, you could insult them, and as long as you didn't kill them, you could come to the temple with all that hate in your heart and offer your sacrifice to God and be legally okay. That's a perversion of everything God stands for. No wonder Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not asking for more legalism here. Legalism is the problem. Legalism is not leading to the change of heart that the prophets had predicted. Legalism is actually undermining, undermining the intent of the command. And with that kind of thinking, Jesus says you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus did not come to bring us legalism. He came to bring us life and that more abundantly. So murder, I'm not supposed to murder. Got it. Never killed anybody. Got it. But murder begins with hatred. It's just farther down the same road. It's on the scale. You know what I mean? It's on the spectrum. So my question is this, how far do you want to go? I mean, how far do you want to go down that road to hate, to evil, to speaking evil, to murder? How far as, you know, people who are connected to God and have the life of God in us, how far down this road should we go? How far can we go before we think it's a sin? Oh, okay. The thing is this, God says, if I do my work in your heart, you're not even going to hate your brother. He says, how can you hate your brother who you can see when you say you love God who you can't see? He's going to come. He's going to take that hate out of your heart. Come on, let him, you know, let him do his work in your life. Let him, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let him do his complete work in you. Let him take away that kind of 
uh, hate, you know, how, how far do we go? You know, with our entertainment, our conversations, our, you know, online where we have anonymity, how far do we go and still think that we're okay with God? Can we do the thing? You know, God hates certain things. He calls certain things sins, mostly because they hurt us or hurt his people, right? But how far can we go and practice those things and still come here and be in the presence of God and think we're okay? He said, first, go get right with your brother. Get rid of that hate. Get rid of the animosity and then anger. So murder starts with anger and hate. And here we go. Hold on. Adultery starts with a look. Adultery starts with a look. It's just farther on down that same road. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, got it. I never committed adultery. What else have you done? No, never committed adultery. But I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the same thing. It's just farther down the road. You remember King David, right? Keep your finger in Matthew. If you want to go there, 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And the story continues, if you know it. David went on to have an affair with her, which led to murder to cover up the affair, which led to a rebuke from God. And then the child that came through the affair died. And then the Bible says evil never left his house. It says that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. It could have ended right there. He could have went down into his house and got busy about the king's business, and that would have been the end of it. But he wanted to walk the next step down that road. So he looked at her. The next step down that road, he admired her. The next step down that road, he inquired of her. The next step down the road, he, he sent for her. Just another step, another step. Come on. When God does that work in our hearts, we won't even be tempted to take that. And I'm not saying we won't be tempted. There's always temptation. I said that wrong. But when God does his work in our hearts, there will be a leading of the Holy Spirit, not even to take that first step in those directions. It could have ended there. See, under the law... You could burn with lust and be consumed with lust and still be right with God. But under grace, he gives us a new heart with new motives. He gives us the will and desire to overcome, to walk back down into the house and not sit up there and stare. Look at this one. I want to start in Deuteronomy with this one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, it says, it's the Lord your God whom you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Okay, so he's telling the, uh, the um, Israelites when they're coming into the promised land that if you're going to swear, swear by his name. Make your oaths in the name of the Lord when you take an oath, right? And this is also backed up by the third commandment from Exodus 20, that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what happens? In their legalistic twisting of the scriptures, they end up with these different levels and degrees of oaths. Because here's the thing. They knew that if they swore by God and took his name, that was serious. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you're okay, say taking the name of the Lord is not necessarily saying cuss words necessarily, okay? But it's it's invoking the name of the Lord and and not keeping your vow that you've committed, okay? So here they are, they're, they're swearing by the, the name of the Lord, and then they don't commit it. And God says, I will not hold you guiltless if you do that. So they're being legalistic. They're like, well, we can't do that. So if we're going to make an oath, we got to make an oath with something where we have a legal loophole so that we're not guilty when we break it. So what do they do? They swear by, the, they swear by heaven, they swear by earth, or they swear by the temple, but not the name of the Lord. 
They make these. So what's the purpose of having these oaths where you swear by heaven, swear by earth? It's because you don't intend to keep it. You're hiding your, your deceitful motives and you, you know, you don't, so you're not going to go so far as to swear by heaven. So you have all these different levels of oaths. Isn't that crazy? And Jesus said, that's coming from evil. That's not coming from my intention. My intention is that you be people of integrity. That your yes be yes. And when you say yes, you mean yes. You don't say yes and then turn around and say no. When you say yes, you say yes and you mean it. When you say no, you mean no. Let's read it where Jesus says it. 533, again you heard it said by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven why? For it is the throne of God. For earth, for it's his footstool. Or Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. You're trying to come short of swearing by the name of the Lord, but heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool, <laughs> Jerusalem is his city. You're still swearing by God. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. What does that mean? It's because with all these different levels of oaths, they were hiding their true intentions to manipulate and to deceive. And Jesus says, you're not going to be like that. Come on, aren't you glad that for when you're dealing with God, his yes is yes and his no is no? If he says it, he can be counted on. He doesn't hide it through some level of oath and 14 legal things. Aha, you think I'm going to help you, but you didn't get this, 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 and I have an escape clause. But that's what they were doing. They were putting an escape clause in their oaths. We've got, to, we've got to know that God can be trusted. And one of the ways to trust God is to know that your words also carry weight. We can't be people who are yes and no, yes and no, because why? If you don't believe your own words, how are you ever going to stand there in the face of something evil and fight? and stand and speak to it and expect your prayers to be answered and your words to be honored. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He wants total integrity of character, not these degrees that they had. And finally, I need to deal with one more just because I don't want to skip it because it's important. Jesus talked about divorce here. To give this some framework, some reference, I'd like to read from Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, six verses. Matthew 19 and verse 3, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And uh, that was a debate in their day. There was one school of thought that you should only get a divorce if there was some kind of marital unfaithfulness or adultery. The other school of thought was... I can put away my wife for any reason. They were divided. And they wanted to know where Jesus stood on the issue. And when Jesus gives them the answer, he bases his answer not on the law, but on creation. And he answered in verse 4, you, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And that is good to know, isn't it? That ends that debate right there, doesn't it? <laughs> from the beginning, he made them male and and female. That's how he did it. Case closed. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Isn't Look at that phrase. Because of the hardness of heart. Understand what Jesus came to do by the Spirit was to take away that hard heart and give you a heart of flesh. But because of hardness of heart, the, he, he permitted, the, and, and let me even tell you, the, the, uh, the Jews, um, 
first, Jesus here, first of all, just to state, restate his position, he allows for divorce only on the grounds of adultery. And really, if you think about it, because when adultery occurs, the covenant's broken anyway. It's a violation of the covenant. But he doesn't, he doesn't say you have to divorce the case of adultery, but you, this permitted, in the case of adultery, the covenant's broken. A divorce is, is something that, that's permissible. But in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5, he kind of restates the same thing. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I, I, got, I had to look and study some of the commentaries on this passage. And it, it seems to be that at the time... Uh, people were just sending their wives away without giving them a, a, a legal divorce. And so what Moses did in the law was he said, if you're going to divorce your wife, if you're going to do it anyway because your hearts are hard and you're going to send her away, what I want you to do is give her a certificate of divorce. It's going to be a legal proceeding where you have a legal certificate that puts the cause of divorce on her. This will do two things. One, it will protect her if she's not an adulteress because you'll put the reason for divorce on there too. It'll allow her to go on and live her life free of you. See, it was a provision because their hearts were hard, but it was never God's original intention. But what did Jesus do? He says, but I say to you, I'm not condoning or permitting divorce. But what they did was they took a law that was intended to protect a woman in their culture and they used it as an excuse to divorce their wives for any reason at all. They undermine God's intent. They undermine the purpose of marriage. And they relaxed the law and the intention of God because of their traditions. They made the word of God to no effect in their lives. Look at Galatians. Uh, I'm going to just I'm going to read two verses in close, two passages in closing. Galatians three twenty one through twenty two and Second Corinthians three five through six. Galatians three twenty one. It says, "Is the law then contrary to the promises of God?" Remember, I was talking about how they working together. They're not always contrary. The law and the promises are not contrary. He says, "Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law." But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was served its purpose to imprison everything under sin so that people could know they were missing it. And then Jesus could come and do his work by the Spirit. What does it mean, the promise by faith? That's the promise of the Holy Spirit that they received in, uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts. That's the new birth as well. This is the promise of the Spirit, that you are reconciled to God, that he does his work in your heart, that he gives you a new creation where he writes his laws on your heart. This is, God believes in this. Come on, if there was a better way to do it, God would have done it a better way. If there was a law that we could have kept, he would have gave us a law that we could have kept. But you can't know him through the law. He really believes in his ability to transform your life by the power of the Spirit. But where does the law come in? It's a tutor, so it can teach us about, teach the Jewish people specifically about Christ. The other thing is, you know what a law is? Think about it in like a scientific, you would ask a scientist, what is a law? A law is a description of reality. Right? You, 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 know, you don't break the law of gravity just because you want to. Right? And I mean, and, and, and think about how the law of gravity is described. When you're a kid, what do you say? What goes up what must come down, right? But anybody who knows more than that knows the law of gravity is a lot more involved than that. It has to do something with the inverse square of the masses or something because it's an attraction of masses and the distance between them. And, 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 uh, as you go on, there's more detail to know about the law of gravity. You know, the, yea, the, thus verily saith the Lord, if thou shalt jump off of a three-story building, thou shalt surely die. 
You don't break those laws. They're descriptions. There's laws we keep every day, man. Laws of physics. Makes your airplanes fly, keeps your cars on the road, keeps traction, you know. There, there are laws. And they're descriptions of reality. And depending on how they're worded, they could be good descriptions of reality or like what goes up must come down. Any scientist will know that does not adequately describe gravity. But for a kid, that's a good start. And so God gives these people with hard hearts a law. And they took it and they made it legalistic. And they twisted it and they undermined his intention. They undermined his purpose. And they made the word of God to no effect in their lives. Let's not be those people. Come on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is of, from God, who made us to be sufficient ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I'm just going to ask you today, I'm going to ask you today to make an appeal to God to walk in the Spirit and not walk in the letter. To let Him continue to work. Let Him continue to work in your heart. If there's an area that you know, you feel that you're not living up to, you're not measuring up to, you're not, going to, you're not going to get the new heart by keeping the law. But the new heart will enable you to keep the law. So just in light, what have you got? What do you want? Anything. Let's just sing a, let's just sing a song through once or twice and just have a time of reflection on this. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to look at this stuff legally and put us under the law. What I want us to do is I want us to be people of the new covenant, ministers of the spirit of the new covenant, ministers of the spirit of life. Because what the world needs is not our legalism. They don't need us to go out there and tell them everything they're doing wrong. What they need is life. They need the life of God. So first we need to make sure we're walking in that first in our lives. Second, we need to understand when we go out and we minister to people and we come in contact with people and when we're, we're, we're meeting the world who's just, just the, it's almost come unhinged, man. It's just crazy, the things that are going on out there right now. But understand what they need is life. They don't need legalism. They don't need law. They don't need somebody giving them more rules. They need life. And you're a carrier of that life. My last verse said, that we are sufficient, not of ourselves. It's not of you. It's of him, right? Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. You are a minister of this new covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of the letter and they took it and they undermined it and they subverted it. But the new covenant is a covenant of the spirit. Let's be ministers of the Spirit, amen?